0: the show goes on this is the official show on the fish stripes podcast as always i'm eli sussman fish stripes managing editor new episodes during the miami marlins offseason Almost always on Wednesdays like this one, though we may have to make a slight adjustment next week. So people stay tuned for those details about what we're doing after this seven days a week. You just go to Fish Stripe's social media feeds on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Just follow us all over there for constant coverage. And of course, bookmark the main site, fiststripes.com, for full coverage of your Marlins. Once again, I'm joined by Fishtripes Deputy Editor Lewis Adio Weiss to continue our Marlins off-season shopping series. But first, a breaking news story earlier in the day that we got to react to first before we go on with our normal business. Miguel Rojas is close to finalizing a contract extension that will keep him with the Marlins beyond the 2022 season. So I grabbed this clip of Miggy. This is him speaking on Tuesday's episode of the Chris Rose Rotation YouTube show.
1: We're talking, we're, uh, we're... We, I'm happy. I'm happy that they approached me the same way that I was thinking early in the year in spring training, and then during the year, uh, I always wanted to be here in Miami, and I want to continue to be here and be part of this organization when we actually uh, we actually take that step towards uh, towards the, the 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 part that we want to be, which is a winning team, winning franchise. So uh, I've been here for the for the up and downs. A lot of downs, but I want to be here for the ups too. So great. Uh we're getting really close and I'm happy to uh I'm happy to share that with you guys.
0: We're getting really close. He says we're still waiting on terms. Just your first reaction, Lewis, about the news that he's gonna be he's been here a long time and potentially gonna be here even longer.
1: Yeah, he's been here since the start of the twenty fifteen season. Not many people talk about how well we did in that. Andrew Heaney, three-team trade with L.A. when we got D Gordon, who would go on to win a batting title, and then Rojas, who has been among the most longest-tenured Marlins, I believe. You know, this 2022 will be his eighth season. I'm not even 100% sure how many Marlins have done that. I know
0: Conine. Well, I I know just because I looked up that exact thing, and it it really amazed me. Um, So as you said, this is going to be his eighth year going into it. Now, Ving signs an extension. You know, it doesn't guarantee that he's going to play out that entire contract. You never know with guys once they get deep into their 30s. But just reaching that eighth season, it ties him with Conine. It ties him with Stanton. It ties him with Ricky Nolasco. um, And who was the other one that made it eight seasons
1: Anibal what? Sanchez was there for six
0: plus. I mean, parts of seven seasons. Right, and the only, but I know the only one that was with the Marlins for more than eight seasons was Luis Castillo. Yeah, he, was, he made it ten years in uh, from '96 to 2005, 2005. was with him. So I mean, he was the longest one. And then it's it, you go down one notch, and it's Mickey. That's the kind of territory he is. I mean, during the season. One thing I noticed is just how high he was climbing on all these all-time lists, all these counting stats, even forget it's a defensive first player, climbing up the all-time hits list, climbing up just games played, even for someone that wasn't a regular. It's such a win for continuity with this team. If there's one running theme throughout this entire Marlins franchise history, it's just yeah, we have not had much continuity at any position. He's He's not a superstar player. I don't think anybody... Has unrealistic expectations about what's going to happen these next few years. But the fact that he's here, that he is pretty universally well liked by his teammates and by the fans, by everybody, just a great guy. They from very humble roots, someone that was a throw-in of that trade that you mentioned, and now that he's been here this long, he's worked himself into a regular. It's such a it's such a win. So we'll have to see exactly what the numbers are. But I think at the very least, that's one thing that makes me thrilled about you know the move the fact that they recognize how important it is to have familiar faces to have guys around from to pass on from an older sibling to a younger sibling and still have the same guy and like most importantly this is going to be a player that is best remembered as a marlin you know no matter what happens the rest of his career i I think it's safe to say that he's going to be one of those few guys that you can everybody will identify as being a part of this organization that 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 alone means a lot
1: during the season, everybody we talked to about him, and even talking to him, it's just, you know, substantive answers about what a great teammate he is, the way that he can kind of assess the situation as a team, the way that Mattingly points to him at points as almost like another coach, the same way that they did with Sandy Leone to a lesser extent. But he's just, you know, like you said, he's just widely respected, and I think he's very underappreciated around baseball circles. Obviously not in Miami because he's one of the better players, you know, currently in this organization. But yeah, I, I, I'm glad he's staying. You know, I do. I think he'll be the starting shortstop for the next, you know, four years. No, we don't know the terms of the contract yet. But there's no complaints I have with this. I mean, he's, you know, he's one of my favorite people in baseball. One of the nicest guys that you can talk to. He really makes your job as a reporter easy when you can ask him a question, get a substantive answer, and. Yeah, it's just an all-around great ambassador for the sport you just you kind of love to see guys like that get rewarded we like we saw with martin prado a couple of years ago
0: yeah and you kind of mentioned it in there about his willingness to change positions, the uncertainty about exactly how long he'll stick at shortstop. He turns 33 right before spring training goes. And there's just not that many guys that play shortstop every single day. Once they get that deep into their careers, he's, he's kind of on, you can count with one hand, the number of guys in baseball right now that are everyday shortstops at that age. And what I'll be curious to see is, you know, how the Marlins go from here. It was mentioned to me by some people that, are always naturally a lot of Marlins fans are are bitter and cynical about everything that happens even something like this thinking that well they'll use this as justification not to go after one of the bunch of elite shortstops that are available this offseason in trade and mostly in free agency and that they'll they'll point to Rojas as a, the placeholder as the guy that has that position filled uh when you know for being honest there is still a pretty significant gap between those elite guys and him and but most importantly he's someone that can fit within any sort of roster configuration because he can play all those other infield positions because in particular he rakes against lefties and it looked like maybe a fluke last year. And then he kind of backed it up this year. He was still great against lefties the last two years combined. He's one of the best hitters in baseball when he has the platoon advantage. And that's something that of course you could fit into. He's going to be one of the top 12 or 13 position players on any roster in the big leagues. He can fit yeah. anywhere, especially whatever the Marlins want to do. So it's not really an excuse to say that because we have him, uh, he doesn't need to be spoiled and you don't need to be complacent. If you're this front office and you're trying to build together the best possible team, Mickey will fit into whatever best version of this Marlins team they can put together for 2022 and beyond.
1: And then when you look at him too, I th- I just think you're looking at a baseball lifer. I think that's this, this is, You know, some of these athletes are so great at what they do, and obviously anybody who's playing professional baseball at any level is a great athlete in their own right. But then there's some of those people who, they may be so good, but they just, you know, they may not watch a lot of baseball off the playing field when they're not, you know, actually out there. And he's just like one of those guys I look at who, you know, as I previously noted, he's an observant kind of person where – you know, he sees the game from every facet. He, you know, he can. You can ask him about probably any pitcher on that roster, and he give you some detailed answer about what their strengths and weaknesses are, what what's great about them as a teammate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know. I, I look at him, and I and I think like you know, like Mickey Rowe, like when he's done playing, whenever that is, he's gonna have so much opportunities to stay in this game, and as and that's honestly, it's a beautiful thing because to me, like there's no more game, there's no game that's more beautiful than baseball. And to have somebody like that, you know, I think he would honestly, I think he'd make a great manager someday. I think he'd be a great infield coach. I think he'd be at, at risk of sounding a little crazy. He may even be a general manager at some point. Like there's a lot of avenues I think you could explore with a guy like that beyond his playing career. And, you know, like I said, I'm glad he's here. I think Even I think he and the one word that I always use to describe him to is selfless. When I think about him is like if 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 Kim Ang and Jeter were to have a conversation with Rojas, you know, after this and we we're not there, we're not flies in the wall. So we don't know a lot about what those internal conversations are. If their plan is to go out and spend in the free agent market this offseason to get a big name shortstop. You know, a guy like Rojas isn't going to have any complaints about maybe getting reduced playing time. Say they were to explore the idea of a Corey Seeger or a Carlos Correa or Trevor Story. And these are all just like, you know, hypotheticals, but these are free agent shortstops who are going to hit the market for a team, especially for a team who, you know, like Miami wants to spend some money this offseason. You know, a guy like Rojas wouldn't be opposed to that if he knows that it's going to help better the team it's one of the things that make him one of those great ambassadors for the sport. And I think a lot of players would maybe not be too keen on like giving up playing time to bring on another star player, but I don't see Rojas as that guy. And I think that's just another one of the many things that makes him so likable around the sport for those who are, you know, aware of him.
0: We'll get into some of those star shortstops, I guess in a few weeks with how we yeah. have the schedule lined up for, for, as I mentioned up top, and for people that listened to the show last week, this is part of a series on Marlins off-season shopping. We're going aisle by aisle, the way I have it set up, in terms of ascending baseball reference wins above replacement from last season. We started last week. You can you can find that on the same broadcast podcast feed from uh, Wednesday with aisle one. All those guys that had produced one or less wins above replacement last year, it included Jack Peterson, Corey Kniebel, Tucker Barnhart, et cetera, a mix of free agents and trade candidates. So people could get caught up there on who we started with. And now we're slowly moving up into like, for lack of a better word, the sexier players, the ones that really do move the needle, uh, but we're still pacing ourselves one aisle at a time, one kind of win chunk at a time. So this aisle two is players that were between 1.1 and 2.0 baseball reference war this past season again a combination of free agents and trade candidates that we are intrigued by that we think fit with the marlins in some way that we think are especially likely because if you go through the list of all the hitters and pitchers that like fit into this criteria it's still over a hundred players but we you kind of narrowed it down quite a bit as we did last time we didn't like exchange lists ahead of time and i think it works better that way just to like go back and forth with guys that we we circled for this aisle two of this series without further ado uh just start us off and we'll go back and forth until we get through everybody that we want to talk about.
1: Yeah, so I'll start with starting pitching. And I know, obviously, anybody who's kind of been observant of this current rebuild knows that the Marlins have a plethora of starting pitching coming through the pipeline. And a lot of it has already arrived. And we've kind of seen like a lot of these guys like Braxton Garrett, you know, Edward Cabrera, Sixto in 2020, get their cups of coffee. But You know, I think the team still could benefit from having a veteran starter. And as you know, better than anybody, obviously, because, you know, you probably see on a daily basis and are a keen, you know, fan of the sport itself. You can never have enough pitching. And we saw that, too. I mean, as much starting pitching depth as the Marlins have within their realm of the minor league system, you know, there were still times where we had to use openers. We had, you know, we had to use bullpen games to kind of save our starters because they weren't really built up. And throwing up innings, obviously, guys like Nick Neider were giving us a lot of length out of the rotation. Um, but a name that I kind of stumbled upon, and he know that knows the NL East. He's from the East Coast. He's from New York. Stephen Matz. I mean, odd pick, but he had a nice under the radar kind of season for Toronto, and a and a one hitter's ballpark and You know, obviously, moving around from Rogers Center, Sehan Field, and I believe they started their season in Dunedin. Um, their spring training facility, but I mean, if you look at the numbers, I mean, win loss record, I don't put too much stock in. He went fourteen and seven. I, again, I'm not that concerned about wins, but it tells me if you're winning fourteen games and you know, you're pitching a decent amount of innings, and in an era where two hundred inning pitchers are kind of like dinosaurs, and it's very seldom that you're going to see him, if not ever, you know, he threw hundred and fifty innings. DRA was three three eight two. The a very you know decent improvement over the last three years where he was pitching to a nearly five ERA over a 411 inning stretch. I mean, that's, you know, it's concerning, but he fared relatively well in Toronto. The, obviously some of the other peripherals were kind of like in line with his career. His whip was about 1.33. But again, you know, you're playing in Toronto, you're playing on Astro turf, you know, a lot of ballpark factors. If you look at baseball, Roberts park factors, Toronto is again, it's a hitter friendly ballpark. It's, and so are the other places where they played throughout the season. He played in the American League East, where really there isn't much room for pitchers to do all that well because you're playing at Yankee Stadium, you're playing in Fenway, you know Camden Yards, Tropicana. Like these are all ballparks that tend to play, you know, favorably to hitters. Maybe Tropicana isn't as much, but you know, a 3.82 ERA, 3.79 fifth, and the American League East is not bad. It make you know you're among the better starters in that division if you can put up numbers like that.
0: Well, I like what you mentioned about him moving homes during the year because of what the Blue Jays did, and I looked up the splits. So he started the year what four games in Dunedin, and then three games, three home games that he pitched while they were in Buffalo, and then five games in Toronto. So he did not have a home like it was almost evenly split yeah. between those three venues over the course of the year. And I'm not exactly sure how to factor in that, but that is pretty wild. I think, yeah, I, I remember him really catching my attention early in the year, just because um, yeah, he was coming off at terrible, that totally lost year in 2020. And there was complete bounce back. If you look at these guys, he does check the, that um, pattern where I am more um, excited about players that if they were bad in 2020, if they were, pitched you know much better than that the year before and the year after. Um I kind of lean towards almost throwing out 2020 entirely. And with him, you know, he has three out of four years that are almost carbon copies of each other in 2018, 2019, and 2021, yeah. if you just throw out the one in the middle. So that that's a good find. But because of his relative youth being what, 30 and hitting free agency. And also because of the fact that he has, you know, that decent track record aside from the COVID season, I just worry. I just wonder what his price is going to be. I shouldn't say worry, but I, I kind of wonder, uh, you might be even selling him short. I'm, I'm curious to see whether my first blush is, I think he could do even better than that over the course of a, a multi-year deal. But that's, I mean, that's a good pick of course, being in this range, exactly on, um, yeah, I didn't even go with any conventional starters on my list. The closest one I went with is Colin McHugh, who was pitching for the Rays this past year. He's a much older guy. He's I actually liken him more to like the best possible version of Ross Detweiler that they yeah. got last year, as someone that has a lot of starting experience. It's it's funny. It's a split like right down the middle between his career starts and his career relief appearances. This season, he's coming off just a fantastic year with the Rays where a 1.55 ERA, a 2.12 FIP. How often do you yeah. see a FIP in the low twos for a guy who he had 30 relief appearances, he had 7 starts this past year, he finished games, He had a, a, that's a stat you don't normally think about, games finished, but he finished 11 games. He absolutely, the peak of versatility for him. And he had a couple of nice moments even in that, Brief postseason run for the Rays.
1: One, two pitch.
0: Arroyo chases one in the dirt. Zanino picks it and throws down back to back K's for Colin McHugh. I guess you could put him in the same way with Matt. You have to throw out 2020, literally, because he opted out pitch. of 2020. Yeah, he was supposed to be with the Reds Red that yeah. year. Yeah. And uh, so he opted out of that season as someone that had been in the league a while. I, I like the versatility. So he contributed a 1.9 war this past year. And he, I mean, he does have this 2018 season, not that far prior to that, which was almost similar across the board as a guy that he gets a lot of strikeouts. What's his strikeout rate year by year? I mean, he was up to 33% in 2018. This past year, he was at an even 30%. That's especially in the American League, that's still way above league mm-hmm. average and first career, way above league average, too. Um, I guess he may have crossed paths with Stephen Matz at one point really early in his life because they're both in the Mets system uh, in the early 2010s but he's he's been around a long time and like I said the versatility and all that because of his age I imagine that he would be a little bit cheaper than Matz. maybe maybe he gets a two year deal just because of how excellent he was this year but that's probably you know the maximum length you're looking at uh, I'm I guess m- more so than you I'd say I'm really confident in them finally having like a lot of internal starting depth where I'm not sure if they need to really make a huge investment in any one, uh, particular conventional starter. But most importantly, as the season goes along almost inevitably, there's going to be holes in that rotation. And this is a guy that has a pretty lengthy track record of being able to make that adjustment during the season, whenever he's needed. So I guess he's like, he's like a half step down on this this big board behind Matt's, but he's he's one that I'm definitely circling.
1: But I think he's also a more he's a safer pick too, which is odd because Matt has the if you look at the stuff, you know, McHugh's a sinker kind of curveball guy. It's a very odd combination. Most of the time when we think of sinker ballers, you know, like a Jake Westbrook, you know, their sinker slider, maybe a changeup. McHugh's got a good straight changeup, or maybe it's a circle change with 10% sure. But when he won nineteen games with Houston, in 2015, the year they really began their ascendance to play perennial playoff contention, he was getting it done with the sinker. He was throwing a cutter and he had that big looping curveball. And that's kind of what we saw a lot in Tampa this year too. He's not overpowering you with his fastball. He's not throwing 98 on a consistent basis, but you know, he, he moves the ball around and obviously they made it work with guys like Chaz Rowe in Tampa doing stuff like that. So they're no strangers to the less than syndergaard esque kind of guys when it comes to actual makeup and stuff like that. But McHugh has a safer track record. And oddly enough, I think he may get less money than Matt's just because of that. Because he's not as, you know, flashy as far as he's more he's almost like a relief a reliever hybrid of like Greg Maddox as far as the way that he does things. I'm not saying he's Greg Maddox because Greg Maddox is like that generation's Warren spawn as far as how he got hitters out. Yeah. But, you know, he's, an, he's a fascinating pitcher. He's almost like a Brett Saberhagen, too, where it's one year he's great, one year he's bad, one year he's great, and one year he's bad. It's on and off, on and off. But I would – you know, I'm sure he picked up something in Tampa. Whatever it is that they're giving their players as far as information goes, I'm sure that that's stuff that these players take with them when they go on other stuff. Look at a guy like Nate Lowe who in his brief stint with Tampa played relatively well. And then he went to Houston to the Rangers and what was a loss season for them. They lost over hundred games. was a pretty good to average slightly above average first baseman. So, I mean, guys like this will benefit from playing in organizations like that. And, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to a guy like that because he can give your starters at rest. He can give your bullpen at rest. If you need length, he was, you know, I make mention of Brian Sanchez a lot. I, there needs to be a counter for every time I make mention of him on a podcast or in an article that I'm writing about long relievers, but you know, it gets overstated. It doesn't get overstated enough how important a guy like that is who can kind of flip flop between the rotation and the bullpen. When you have, you know, you're playing a 162 game season and guys are going to get tired. Guys are going to get hurt. So that's a, nice, a nice security blanket who could give you some high leverage innings too.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, comparatively, like I'm saying, probably won't break the bank, but we've seen this organization, not yet. They haven't made any sort of like big investment in any pitcher. I mean, so to this point, I think the most money they've spent on any one outside pitcher was Anthony Bass last year. So in this territory, and probably with other guys we're going to mention, this is going to be like a new stretch kind of out of their comfort zone if they're going to get any of these guys that you know they really want.
1: In this era, yeah. I mean, we did give Mark Burley four years and $56 prior to the 2012 season. But in the Jeter-Sherman, now Ang era, yeah, we haven't really opened up the checkbook for starting pitching. And, you know, there's nothing – I mean, in a sense, there's not really anything wrong with that because Jeter and Coase seem to have faith in what they're building as far as a pipeline of starting pitching goes. And, again, nothing wrong with that. Obviously, the early returns on guys like Sixto and Trevor Rogers are, you know, two thumbs up for most of us across the board. But you know, you know, one year doesn't really show you anything other than like what could be and what won't what may not be over the long term. So another name that I had as far as the starting pitcher goes, and this is you know, when I teased prior to the show and we were having our you know, our conversations prior to getting started was a name that may kind of like take you back a little bit, but I like it just because I've always been a fan of his. If the if I woke up tomorrow or when the World Series ends and I see that the Marlins are engaging in talks with a guy like Zach Granke, I'm not gonna complain. Listen, he's a he's a veteran. He's a veteran. He's gonna be entering his age 38 season in 2022. The velocity's not there anymore. He's not throwing 95, 96 the way he was in Kansas City, but he still manages to be an effective big league pitcher. I mean, he was only worth 1.2 Baseball Reference WAR, and although he started off relatively strong, and then he kind of cooled off at the end. We did some concerns, though, may be the fact that. He's only thrown once entering tonight in the last like two weeks. And then his last four starts to end the season. He had an ERA over 11.
0: Yeah. As we're recording this, he finished up his, um, like they needed him desperately yeah. to fill in for the Astros in this, what game four of the ALCS. And he eliminated and an ending in a third through more balls than strikes. Uh, so this is not indicative of the year that he had though.
1: No, I mean, but, and when you, if you look beyond that, because look, it's important you obviously want to pitch well in the postseason. And we can talk we can have a separate podcast about Granky's sketchy history in playoff baseball as far as it goes. I mean he's on the lighter version of Clayton Kershaw as far as big game big name pitchers throwing, you know, less than seller games in October. But Granky, you know, you can throw out the four point one six ERA – Although the FIP was about 4.7, but the whip was only 1.17. So a lot of the damage that he gave up came via home runs. He allowed 30 home runs in 171 innings pitched, and he's not missing that's the way that he used to. But I don't put it past a guy who can like like him, who's kind of just evolved beyond the velocity the way the guy like Frank Tanana did or even CC Sabathia later in their career, where they just managed to kind of find a way to get hitters out despite you know not having what was once their strength in that philosophy I lo- and just to see how a, a professional like Granky does it albeit he does it a little bit differently because of his his battles with clinical depression and anxiety he's obviously not the most like open kind of player and that's nothing to use against him listen there's people that suffer from depression and anxiety and that's never something you should joke about but it's a it's a hallmark of kind of what makes him unique is just the way that he goes about his business, the bluntness in which he kind of approaches interviews. Even when he rarely does them, he's to me, he's one of the most fascinating players I've ever seen. I think he's a future hall of famer. And regardless of maybe how open he may be with some of the young guys, I think just watching a guy like that on a daily basis would be just be fat. Even if he's given up five runs (laughs) and outing, you know, Sorted throughout the season, I'd love to have a guy like Greg in the stuff. He's just a professional in every sense of the word, and yeah, he's a guy that I'd love to see in Miami. Albeit, I don't know if he even want to be here.
0: Right. Well, they the Marlins have a very interesting track record of somehow convincing or at least outbidding other people for these end of the road hall of famers. I mean, they got that each year. they have Tim rains. They have a bunch of guys in between, yeah. uh, Andre Dawson. Uh, I mean, the list goes on of other guys that that somehow they, they landed with for different motivations. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. And he's, he definitely crossed my mind. I didn't have him circled, but he, d- he did cross my mind because I knew he was available. And, um, I guess unfortunately for him, but fortunately for the Marlins at this moment, he would he would be somebody that you think his stock is pretty far down in terms of actually being a pitcher that he's someone that would be in their price range whatever that price range is yeah my list is pretty heavy on hitters the last pitcher i really have in here is an old friend and not really that old well not that long ago it was be a recent reunion with Brad Boxberger who this year was with the brewers and i liked the the move at the time he had reached like a crossroads in his career and he had to he went with driveline to kind of reinvent himself to change his pitch design to regain some velocity. And he was, you know, he was pretty good during the shortened season, but it was a short season. And he did have some individual moments that stuck out. Um, that for whatever reason, the Marlins didn't seem any bit interested in bringing him back for this year after being in 2020 on the one year contract. So he languished in free agency all the way into deep spring training and he landed with the Brewers. And for the Brewers, I mean, I guess the one concern that maybe people had about him was—is I don't know what, exactly what specific concerns may have like had him lingering that long, other than just being a reliever. He was pretty good with the Brewers this year. For a reliever to be in this tier, in this between 1.1 and, and two or, you need to be durable and you need to be well above average in run prevention. And he put up a 3.34 ERA. He he was extremely tough to hit. Well, his opposing batting average was one ninety two this year. He gave his fair share of home runs, but like overall, pretty average. Eight home runs in 64 and sixty four and two thirds innings. And I mean, most importantly, the strikeouts went through the roof. They were solid last year, but this year was, I believe, his highest in about four years since his Tampa Bay days. At thirty one point two percent K rate. He wasn't ever closing games for them. He wasn't even their primary setup guy with the Brewers. People know those names, but he was like their main seventh inning guy and he even had like some some fill-in saves. He has that long track record before he came to the Marlins and really now in his career it kind of seems like his 2019 season, the one that like almost made him fall out of being a major leaguer in the first place. That kind of seems like an anomaly. He is if you look back, you have now close to a decade of him being a pretty well above average reliever so it's I think it's a red flag though there's never a strong interest in the team like pursuing him on a new deal um but they are obviously familiar with him they worked relatively well with him during that shortened season um in 2020 and he's going to be available again I, I I'm not exactly sure what exactly pulled me to single him out here but he like we saw him pretty recently and I kind of liked him and I was really curious to see what would happen once he got a full season to reestablish himself and he reestablished himself. So he's still still someone that I would imagine is going to be a one year deal more expensive than it had been the previous two years. I, I didn't understand exactly why they let him go without, you know, making a more serious offer in the first place. And I think I'd be fine with them buying high to bring him back as a, a pretty high leverage arm for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, the last two years he's thrown about 90 innings in, or 83 innings. He's got a three thirty twenty seven ERA. It's about a one thirty ERA plus. So he's been a good reliever for the last couple of years. I mean, we've seen guys like this who – and he throws harder. But, I mean, we talked about Tony Watson last week. Boxberger, you know, he's a cutter fat. He's a four-seam cutter guy. He's got that night. – he's got a sharp slider, too, that I believe he throws a lot with two strikes. And, yeah, I mean – that 2019 in Kansas City wasn't anything to write home about, but you know he backed up his season this year. I think what impressed me the most is whip. His whip was only 107, and he, like you said, he gave up a fair share of home runs. But the whip is low because he's not really allowing a lot of hits. I believe he only allowed like 44 hits in 63 innings or something,
0: yeah.
1: which or 63, 65 innings, which is very good. I mean, obviously you want to have quick, efficient innings, but if you're not allowing hits, you know, like. That's going to do a lot for your, you know, it's keeping your hitters on your feet. He's striking guys out. I believe he had over 11 strikeouts per nine this year. And yeah, I mean, we saw last year when the Marlins had a great season, though, like the, the underlying metrics for a guy like Brandon Kinsler weren't as right. great as his ERA yeah. was. It's, it's a
0: different story than Kinsler. Kinsler was that one where, yeah, you could kind of see the cliff coming. And with, with Boxberger – you just didn't because the velocity
1: sustained yeah. itself. And he was throwing, we saw him in the division series, he was throwing 94, 96. Getting big outs for them. And I think that's going to bode well for him. You know, it's funny. I was looking at him today, too, and I'm thinking this guy's going to be, you know, the way that they've kind of worked with pitchers the last year or so. The San Francisco Giants are probably going to be a team that I think will kind of bid for his services because they, even when Bruce Bochi was at the helm and they were winning those World Series in the early 2010s, he was the king of bullpens, whether he was working with a guy like, you know, Javier Lopez, he had the long, the reliever who pitched for the Rockies and he finished with them. I'm totally blanking on his name, but they had it. He had a slew of guys in, oh, Jeremy Affelt. He had a slew of guys there that who were, they weren't household names, but Bochi was able to coax great performances out of them. And I think Kapler's kind of done that there. You know, obviously this isn't a Giants podcast, but I looked at, I looked at box and I'm like, yeah, San Francisco is going to be all over a guy like that because even Oakland, who tends to do well with relievers, I think they're going to be all over a I I'm a big burger guy and I wouldn't be opposed to Miami bringing them back because you know, any I'm living under the guys that you, anytime you bring a pitcher into a pitcher's ballpark, there's going to be some sort of overall positive performance or you can draw from when the season's over. I actually had another reliever that we're on the subject of is the last pitcher I had that's in this category and a guy who knows the division, albeit he pitched for just one NLC, and That was the Phillies this year, but Ian Kennedy, You know, a former starter who none of us kind of envisioned doing what he's done. He's slowly become like almost a closer. Takes a look back at the runner, the pitch, and a high fly ball out to right field. Harper's got room, and he makes the catch. It's a can of corn, and the Phillies hang on and win it by a final score of 4-3. to Philly, he had a one, you know one point four baseball reference, wore a three twenty ERA, sixty two strikeouts in fifty six innings, and the WHIP is one point one zero. Uh yeah, I mean he was saving He's been saving games for the last couple of years, and you know he's what you're going to get from him is a big question mark given his age. I believe he'll be thirty eight at the or thirty nine at the outset of the next season, but you know ian kennedy you could do a lot worse for bringing a guy like that on a veteran who's not going to cost much but looks like he still has something in the tank with obviously the fastball velocity's gone up a little bit since he's returned to the bullpen i've kind of always liked him he's not the best you know reliever in the world he's kind of been like a slightly above average one but you could do a lot worse than bringing a bring on a guy like him
0: he's interesting because through a lot of his career probably one of the biggest hangups about him was his vulnerability to home runs. He's the type of guy that if you put him in Lone Depot Park, then I mean that's one big weakness that to some extent gets neutralized. That he's if you he makes the same pitches and allows the same contact as a Marlin as he would with other teams, he's gonna allow less home runs and more fly outs and be more successful. It's it's a difficult like line to cross. You know, whether a guy um is just bad in that category or whether just those extra few feet of distance that the ball doesn't travel in Lone Debo Park makes a huge difference for someone that if you bring him in, he's pitching super high leverage innings. I think I got the wrong idea from him just from like following Philly's Twitter. Like there were a couple games I think that he really did shit the bed, but like overall, yeah. overall he was all right for them after he was, as you mentioned, he was pretty excellent for the Rangers. Uh, whatever other pitchers you got, we, we could probably run through them right now. Those are
1: the... Those were the only three that I thought made any semblance of sense. All right. um, I I looked at a guy like Jose Alvarez was a name that I thought made sense just to give us a, another lefty out of the bullpen. because, And I thought, you know, ever since he came up with Detroit back in, I believe it was 2014 or 2015, I always thought, you know, he was not, you know, he, he never had overpowering stuff. But he kind of got it done with like a low 90s fastball, and a good slider and a good changeup. And then we saw what he did for San Francisco this year, and he was arguably their best reliever. You know, he had an ERA below two, and he did it while making a million and a half dollars this year. There's a team option for 2022, so I'm pretty sure San Francisco is going to pick that up. But if in some case that they decline that, I'm kind of hoping that the Marlins would give him a call, give his agent a call, because like I said, you know, he's got a track record of not being an amazing pitcher, but over the last couple of years has been among the – more under the radar relievers in the sport so i mean that, that's a guy who can make sense should san francisco decline that deal but uh yeah if you want we can if you have any other pitchers we can get into those or we can move on to position players because yeah, definitely got a lot of guys
0: yeah it's a good time to transition to the bats that's what i think a lot of people tuned in to hear about how we're gonna address that just to, to reset and that's lewis adio weiss eli sussman for aisle two of marlins all season shopping players this past season that produced between 1.1 and two wins above replacement. Um, as we work our way up to the biggest fish, but we got some interesting names here. Um, oh, I, yeah, I, I've uh, so the one that uh, this is the one that has been in my head like since probably September has been Tommy Fam. Of uh, yep, most recently, <laughs> most recently, the Padres. He's had a couple of huge years in his career, once with the Cardinals and then with the Rays. And ever since the race traded him to San Diego, you know, there've been glimpses of the guy that we know, but for the most part, he actually he disappointed I'd say over the last couple of years with them um, And this past season, got off to a pretty decent start, but then really faded down the stretch. And so the overall numbers aren't, aren't that great. That's why he's in this aisle too, because only 1.4 war from him. There's a lot we could say about him, but what just sticks out the most is that he, he walks, he walks a yeah. lot. And every single year uh, throughout his career, he, he walks and he combines walks with really good, at, like, his athleticism. He hits the ball hard and he still runs the bases really aggressively. And at the center of that is just the fact that he's patient enough to work deep counts and to get on base. And that's one thing that Marlins desperately need: more guys that work deep counts, get on base. For anybody that doesn't know, he is an outfielder. He's deep enough into his 30s that you question how much he could really give you in center field, but he has played all three of those outfield positions before. He could at least fake it in center field where the Marlins have a big void. Ground ball down the first baseline. It's a fair ball. Machado coming around from second to score. Heading to second with an RBI double goes Tommy Pham, and the Padres have a two-run lead on top seven to five. Tommy Pham got beat on that pitch. He got jammed, but he fights this one off. Down
1: by the label. Opposite way. Just out of the reach of
0: Muncie. He had some interesting comments, I believe, out there that made it pretty adamant that he wants to do a one-year pillow contract to kind of reestablish himself. That can make sense. Or maybe he is softens on that stance and is willing to kind of accept more of a fourth outfielder, not surefire starter, a more malleable role. I think either way, uh, the Marlins should... Like look into that fit as much as possible because coming off the season he has he should be in the price range and he does some things that they really desperately need.
1: Yeah, he him and the next person that I'll mention are kind of similar, albeit the next person has a, a slightly bigger track record of sustained success. But I mean, he played a fan played, I believe it was one hundred fifty three, one hundred fifty five games this year, and while the slug was below four hundred, like you said, he walks. He had a three forty on base, so he still finished with and OPS slightly north of 710 and, you know, 103 OPS plus, it's not, you know, you're not going to win any awards with that. But for a guy who may at worst be a fourth outfielder, you know, you can do a lot worse. He hit for, I mean, we've seen in the past that if you put him in the corner outfield spot, you put him in left field, he can, and he's shown at times in St. Louis and in Tampa Bay, he can play gold glove caliber defense, in those corner outfield positions. And that's for a guy too who's playing with a surgically reconstructed eye. I don't know if you ever heard that story, but back right. in the yeah. minor leagues, he had a procedure because he's I believe he's legally blind in one of his eyes, if I'm not hundred percent mistaken. And you know, it's just almost like what we said with Granky with a lot of the adversities that he had faced. You know, it's a testament to guys' determination like Fam and Granky to be able to perform at the levels that they have for stretches of their career, despite these adversities. Yeah, I mean, I, I had him on my list, too, as a guy that I thought made sense for us. I thought if Garrett Cooper is just going to continue to get hurt, then, you know, we need somebody who can play right field, especially because I don't even think J.J. Bleday is going to correct the big league roster at any point in 2022 unless he just comes out, you know, guns a-blazing in, tw- in the minor leagues because obviously there's concerns there. The next guy that I kind of prefaced as being slightly similar to him as far as where he's at in his career and age and just overall performance last year. And listen, he's played on the East Coast for a majority of his career. I know I've referenced that for some of these guys. He's from Fort Meade, Florida. He played with Pittsburgh. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, we got another interception.
0: Yeah, Andrew McCutcheon, go ahead. And
1: this, and it's literally the same thing with Tommy Pham. Despite the fact that we've seen that while he was in Philadelphia, the defense is just never going to resurge. He's kind of been one of those guys who was, because of his athleticism, was kind of touted as a good defender. But history has shown us, you look at defensive run saved, you look at total zone. McCutcheon's kind of been a below average defender for the majority of his career. But... It's the same thing with fam. His plate discipline is excellent. He had 81 walks and less than 500 plate appearances this year. He had a 444 slug, so he's obviously still able to hit the ball out of the ballpark. You know, he's not slugging 500, but he had a 334 on base, which makes a 222 batting average look a little bit better. It's so funny, though. I mean, he was literally one point away from having one of the most fascinating triple slash lines I'd ever seen. It, I like the it, like the trifecta slash line. He hit two twenty two, three thirty four, and slug four forty four. If only his OBP was one point lower, that would have been a fascinating two three four kind of slash line. But that being said, like I wouldn't even expect a guy like that to play every day. But you know, if Andrew McCutcheon's coming off the bench, that he's gonna he could draw a late walk for you, and he could have the potential to hit a big home run for you. And you know what? Like he didn't really equate the, if you look at fangrass value to dollars, as far as how they equate war to to uh, money, he didn't necessarily equal the 51 million that the Phillies gave him, but there's been, you know, contracts of that length that have been a lot worse. And I thought he was among the better corner outfielders in baseball before he got hurt in LA in 2019 on that play when he was tagging up from first base. I I don't know. I mean, like I've always been a McCutcheon fan. He's one of my favorite people in baseball. I think he's you know, he's he's funny. He he hit twenty-seven home runs last year. So I mean like clearly he still has something in there. If there's a DH in the National League, depending on what the CBA states, that would further make what he would do even more exciting. I you know, he obviously he's played in he's played in New York, he's played in Pittsburgh, he's played in He's played in Philadelphia, so he knows the East Coast, central part of the of the MLB. I I, lo- I love Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, even if he's not playing every day, I still think he'd be an excellent addition to our team.
0: Yeah, well, what I wrote down was a quiet 27 home runs. I did not realize yeah. that it was that high. It was the third highest home run total of his career for someone that has had an awesome long career. And for that and power deal, or- to still very much be there. I, uh, as you referred to, just a plus 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 human being and like ambassador for your team. He, he he does actually draw people to your organization for sure with that kind of personality that he has. The big question with him is whether he's actually available or not because he does have a club option for next year that's fifteen million or it's a three million dollar buyout. And so I'm I'm really curious as to whether the Phillies pick that up. They have a lot of big deals, which I think. Probably I if I had to guess, I'd say they turn it down, but maybe they worked out a smaller deal if he really liked being there, because I don't think the Marlins would pay him fifteen million a year or anybody else, but maybe half of that at least. So it'll be really curious to be totally sure whether he's available or not fully, but I'm I'm hoping so for sure.
1: Yeah, fingers but, crossed.
0: Yeah. Let me go to I'll stick with one more uh Hmm. I'll go to a trade candidate then, one that is, I guess is primarily an outfielder as his career has gone on, um, although he's played a lot of both both infield and outfield, and it's another guy that I, I'd, re- I'd circled him last offseason as someone that I thought made so much sense for the Marlins, and now he's definitely available, and, w- and we'll see whether they can match up. It would be Ian Hap of the Cubs.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to go to tell because of where he fell. We'll get the- to him.
0: We'll get yeah. to him. He was, okay. I mean, yeah, we'll build up to him for sure. With Ian Hap, he, he's been with the Cubs, his entire career. He's, he's one of the youngest guys that we're going to talk about. I think he's only going into his age 27 season. And he has two more years of club control left. We we don't want to put too many trade candidates uh, on here just because we don't know exactly how available they are. But with him, he's on the Cubs, and the Cubs were very clear with the direction of the organization at the deadline last year. I think they'll make just about anybody available uh, for the right offer. And Hap got off to such a terrible start this year um, for the first third of the year almost where he was one of the worst hitters in baseball. He wasn't hitting and tapping into any of his power, and his power is kind of what got me really interested in him in the first place. He he absolutely caught on fire right after the trade deadline, when kind of by default they had to make him an everyday starter again. They didn't have anybody else to play with the Cubs after all their deadline moves. So he played a whole lot of outfield last year. Let me get like the full breakdown. But he has plenty of experience at, Second base, a little bit of experience at third base, and experience at all three of those outfield positions. Um, I guess it, it's kind of up for debate exactly how good he is defensively, but the for him, it's about the versatility and it's about the bat when he's going right. I mean, entering this year, he had a career OPS over 800 and he finished this year with a 757 after getting really hot down the stretch, 25 home runs this year. Um, and that's kind of the rate he's been at in his career. Like, if oh, prorated over a full season, he hits he's going to hit you 20-plus home runs if you get him anything close to everyday playing time. Uh, so he he's a switch hitter, too. Um, and he's had some bouts in his career where he's been a lot better from one side or the other. Um, and, I mean, this past year, just really streaky. You know, I thought he'd be someone that wasn't in this aisle. I thought he would definitely be more productive if he got everyday playing time. Um, but he's someone that... He's still arbitration eligible. He's not going to be super expensive and multiple years of control um, for a team that absolutely is in, in, in cell mode. Uh, So I like his power. Uh, The big flaw with him is the strikeouts at times. They become really unmanageable. He has the versatility. And I mean, for a team that's just so desperate for bats to get someone that even if you want to be really critical, he's an above average hitter. Every single year of his career, he's finished at least above average in OPS plus. And that's a, that's a pretty nice floor to have when you look at most of this roster and you just cross your fingers that some of these guys can be an average hitter uh, at the very least, he's going to give you something. Uh, so they send a couple young pitchers to the Cubs for him. Uh, I really, I, I like the fit because it's so easy to fit a guy like that when he plays all those different positions.
1: Yeah. He's a poor man's Chris Taylor and even poorer man's Ben Zobrist. As far as, you know, if he- if you get anything out of a guy who's made appearances at seven di- or six different positions over the course of his career, you know, excluding the one inning that he pitched, although he does have the a career zero ERA, so if we ever get in a pinch, we got somebody we could throw on the mound. He, you know, if you know if you're getting twenty home runs out of a guy who's going to make starts for every outfield spot, he could play a little second base, a little infield, or a little third base. I know he played some shortstop in the minor leagues. He was listed on prospect list back in 2013-2014 as a short as a second baseman center fielder the the swing and miss is a problem although he does balance it with a decent on base percentage for a guy who hits for as low a batting average as he does i mean he's not adam dunn hitting 200 with a 370 380 on base but if you're playing that many positions you kind of can get away with a little bit of that because you're giving guys days and you know like if you know, best case scenario, he hits thirty home runs for us, and he plays, you know, a little bit of first base, second, third, and he'll get maybe ten to twenty starts in the center field throughout the season. And I'm sure the Marlins would be thrilled with that. But you know, it's a risk with a guy like this because you're taking him from a ballpark in Chicago, which you know, with the winds blowing out, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have some some home run derbies in Wrigley Field. Whereas if you bring him to Miami, where the roof's gonna be closed most of the time. You know, you'll hit one to the warning track and I don't mess with you mentally when you're not hitting as many home runs. Yeah.
0: Or, well, least, he did very memorably. He hit that first home run on opening day in 2018. You're right there. Yeah. So open the new era of Marlins baseball. I'll always remember that one. So
1: that seems almost, you know, that's almost like some form of symbolism. Maybe he could be a piece that helps us. I like him a lot. I, again, the 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 concerns that you levied are merited because, You know, for a team that doesn't have a lot of uh, patient hitters the way that we don't, it's, you know, one thing to bring another guy on whose propensity for the strikeout is, you know, if he was a reliever, it would be great if he's striking out that often. But he's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, the upside is still very much there because we've seen in the past that he is capable of being, you know, a very good hitter. The question of whether or not that would translate into Miami, you know, I guess we would have to trade for him first to see. I wouldn't be opposed to it, although, like you said, there is some question marks that hang over him for sure. Um, if you want to go for a guy that I think is going to put the ball in play a little bit more and meets that criterion of being able to, you know, wear a couple of different gloves throughout the season, how about a guy who knows, you know, the National League East? He knows Pittsburgh, Josh Harrison, a former of mm. Andrew McCutcheons, who – over the last couple of years, he's been a slightly above average hitter again. After a 2019, an abbreviated 2019 with Detroit, where you know they brought on guys like him and Jordy Mercer, and you're like, "Wow, like he's got nothing left." I believe he had like an OPS plus that year of 29, and you're starting to think like, "Yeah, like this guy's probably done." But then you know he goes over to he signs that two year deal with Washington. He plays well last year. He plays well this year. You know, we thought 2020 was a fluke for a lot of people, given the brevity of the season. And he, you know, finished this year with a 400 slug. He had a 741 OPS. And, you know, he's doing that while playing second base, shortstop. He can play the corner outfield spots. I believe he's got some time in center field. I know he's played third base at some points in his career. And for all intents and purposes, he's been average to slightly above average at times at a myriad of positions, which it's, you know, not surprising because he has a track record of success. We know he's a former all-star. I mean, he put up two, two baseball reference WAR this year for a guy who wasn't always an everyday player. And, you know, we don't know. John Birdie got hurt around June, July, and we didn't see him again for the rest of the season. So the Marlins don't really have that utility guy. Yeah, you'd want to maybe get a guy who has the propensity to hit home runs a little bit more, but Josh Harrison's not Omar Vizquel you know, I think he's going to hit his fair share of home runs, maybe whether that's seven to 10, but that's seven to 10 home runs. We wouldn't have gotten from a guy like birdie whose power is almost non-existent. I I'm a big Josh Harrison. guy. I like his flair. I like, you know, the ability for him to put the ball in play a little bit more than guys like Hap and, and such. But yeah, I mean, you know, in a couple of weeks I'll probably be talking about Chris Taylor because I think he's like our dream. He's our, our white whale as far as position players beyond Castellanos that I'd love to see next year, but you know, Josh Harrison would be, he's a great clubhouse guy. And then he would just be a great like accessory piece to what would be another great, would just be a great team altogether. If he's even there would be even better.
0: Yeah. We're really aligned well on this because I think not even including Catal Marte officially already three guys we've covered that were on both of our lists separately. Harrison was, for me, something I've mentioned on the last pod is just the importance in particular of having um, kind of four guys for three spots between second base, shortstop, and third base that you really like that can actually hit. And down the stretch with Oakland, his main two positions were second base and third base. You mentioned like he does play a lot of other positions, but he's probably an infielder for... Mm -hmm primarily moving forward. And I think if you want to talk about particular positions that I'd love for the team to fill this off season, those would be the ones to make sure that you have a backup plan in case something goes haywire with Brian Anderson's rehab, or in case uh, with jazz and all the routine mistakes he made at second base this past year, if that continues for whatever reason, or if as any young player, if he takes a step back, you want to have a solid insurance plan. That is um, among all other things is a pretty reliable bat. He has his limitations, but he has more often than not. He does hit well. And I think you trust, even you brought up Birdie, and I think that's the perfect guy to bring up in relation to him. Where I think uh, if everything goes right, Birdie could be an even better player. But the biggest question with him is his hit tool. And with Harrison, it's kind of the opposite. Like that's one thing that you know he does pretty well. And they can't take that for granted because of the limitations that this team has. Uh, Another utility guy I wanted to stick in here, kind of as an homage to somebody else at Fist Traps, our intern, Kevin Barral. He's been, for whatever reason, he has been uh, mentioning repeatedly that the Marlins should go after Larry Garcia of the White Sox, who's been with the White Sox for a bunch of years now, produced 2.0 baseball reference war this past year. So one of his better years. And he, early in his career, I kind of need to include myself in this, where I think early in his career, he was so bad offensively that a lot of people wrote him off. But if you look at the last four years, every single year, the last five years, every year he hits 270, 271, 279, 271, 267. And some years it's a really hollow 270, but other years it's it's a little bit better than that. So he is his bat has come along a long way. As some of the other guys we've mentioned, he plays pretty much every single position on the infields and the outfields. He's probably a better runner than the past couple guys that we mentioned as well. And he's now gotten the taste of playing with some good teams. Uh, I, yeah, he's, he's not somebody personally that I'm super familiar with, or uh, I, I wouldn't like back up the Brinks truck for him. I don't know whatever his contract is looking at, but he is a little younger than certainly uh, Josh Harrison. Uh, or most of these other free agents he's going to be 31 right before the start of, of next season. And he seems to be well liked uh, among that community, uh, as a person off the field. So not much power. Um, and for his career, he just has really interesting tendencies of being somebody that knows how to find the holes that he is. He gets a whole lot of singles, even if the peripheral stats, don't back it up. He, he's pesky. He's, he's versatile. Um, but I wanted to mention him just because of, of Kevin, our our intern who, who really loves yeah. him. I wanted to throw his name out there as, as somebody that fits in this general mold. He's coming off a, a pretty good year. And um, I guess if you go down the list, he, he's somebody that they should at least take a close look at and, and see whether or not this is sustainable. Yeah.
1: He wouldn't be expensive. He's coming off a two year, $6.75 million deal with Chicago after being there now for parts of nine seasons. So he was there for some lean years and, Last couple of years now, he's been there for some of the better baseball that they've played, you know, and since maybe the early to mid 2000s when they were, when they won the World Series. I, I'm not like too keen on him just because his career OPS is literally 666. It's not like he doesn't have a long track record of hitting for power. His slug is under 400, but, you know, it's another example of. I mean, I personally, I think he's like, if we're going on this list of utility guys that have a stronger hit tool, you know, you're looking at maybe a hierarchy of, of a guy like Taylor, and then you're looking at a guy like, you know, Hap, and then you're looking at a guy like Josh Harrison, and you could flip-flop Harrison and Hap, and then below you're looking at a guy like Larry Garcia. So if all those guys were to get jobs before, and we still see Larry Garcia's on the free agent market, then I think maybe you give him a call because, yeah, he – He's one of those rare types who, like tell Marte, can possess the ability to play center field. He can play shortstop. He can. He's played essentially every position. He's even pitched a couple of times for the White Sox. Although, like, what does that mean nowadays when there's so many blowouts and the way that teams are tanking? So the better teams are going to win ten to nothing more often than not. But you know, like I said, he's a fourth-tier option in that avenue of players who can move around across the field. Not the worst option, but of those four he's probably the lesser of the four agreed so um the then if you want to move on stay in the infield although we talk primarily outfielders although harrison you know have, have their experience playing the infield a guy that i thought made sense he and i said could kind of be like our adam duvall though i think maybe you're gonna get a little bit more consistent offense but i could be wrong kyle seager I don't think he's going to leave the American League. I think he'll probably stay just because he's entering his mid-30s. But, you know, the peripherals aren't, like, great. He had, you know, he only hit two twelve, but he hit a career-best 35 home runs. He hit .285 on base, which is where the Duvall comparison kind of, like, erupts in my brain, where it's just like, yeah, he's... Wasn't really walking a lot, but he played so many games. He's a guy that has the knack for playing nearly every day. That you know he walked—I believe he walked more than 50 times this year, which is not nothing. But when you're playing 160 plus games, or it's almost—he's a guy that almost never really takes days off. You know that'll start to affect the on-base percentage. And at least in that sense, that he's always out there. He's durable. He slugged 438, which for over the course of a season in seattle you know isn't you know that's pretty good you know the power is obviously still there i think the defense has the defense has gone down slightly over the past couple of years i know the last two years he's rated slightly below average in drs but it's negative three runs which i don't think is something that would hurt us too much and he doesn't really even have to play every day i mean personally i've been speculating he's going to wind up somewhere like philadelphia because alec bohm's glove is you know him at third base just doesn't work there and I think Reese Hoskins has probably overstayed his welcome or he's just, you know, he's a DH in the waiting. But, I mean, Seager, again, is a guy who we talk about Brian Anderson, who's got, you know, I would say tools in the world to be maybe a consistent 20 home run guy with great defense at third base if he's healthy consistently. Kyle Seeger is at least a guy you know is going to be out there 98% of the time, whereas you don't have that guarantee with Anderson because it's not two years now where his seasons have ended prematurely due to injury. But, you know, he, he I think he's got a long track record. If he's got one of he's gonna be one of those 40 war players that we're gonna like forget about in a couple of years after he retires. Yeah. Where he's just a quiet, you know, his brother obviously we know his brother's an excellent player too. So it kind of runs in the family just to be consistently good players. But I uh, you know, to inject some more home runs into that lineup kyle see or you know sign me up for
0: a year or two you know low
1: aav i wouldn't be opposed to that
0: Uh, 11 major league seasons and one time on the injured list like one injury in 11 years is especially with how injuries are managed these days like they put you on they preemptively put you on the aisle for things that don't even exist and he has been if nothing else he's been out there he's been durable he's interesting but we alluded to this guy already a few times. So let's get into Catel Marte, who we were not expecting to find in this aisle. He is he is on sale, I guess. Well, we'll have to find out whether he's actually available at a reasonable price. Because he's not a free agent, of course. He's on the Diamondbacks. And he is, when he's been healthy, he's been one of the best players in baseball. He's got three more years of control, one more guaranteed, and then two more team options. At the end, he was like he was on an MVP trajectory after one week this season. He was amazing in that first week, and then he got hurt with a hamstring injury, and that kept him off the field for various times through almost half the year. He missed almost half the year with this nagging hamstring injury. In between, he slashed 318, 377, 532 while splitting time at center field and second base. One of the few guys in his career that has played significant time both in the middle infield and center field as an everyday player. It's one thing to do that as a utility guy, but he has been in both of those positions for significant chunks of time at his peak in 2019. I don't know if people remember this. He finished fourth in MVP voting in national league MVP voting during the previous full season. It wasn't that long ago in 2019. And even now he just turned 28 years old, you know, theoretically right in that sweet spot of his aging curve, You'd want them. The Diamondbacks lost about 200 games last year, and so they're in a position where even though people expect them to bounce back to some extent, um, nobody is off limits, deals could be made, and these teams have done deals before, which is kind of why I'm mentioning them in the first place. Just because we have this now we have this pipeline of this Marlins in during this Marlins rebuild of making trades with the Diamondbacks, of course, just a couple of years ago, Gallon and Jazz. And just one year ago with Starling Marte from the Diamondbacks, these front offices, they work well together. Marlins have won those farm systems that have enough, presumably, to get him uh, if they really wanted to, if they believe he's a missing piece. The fact that he has played center field uh, so much in his career, we know that's a huge void for the Marlins, and that he has that versatility to play in the middle infield for those potential questions that I have about Jazz and Mickey Rowe as full-time players. Um, one thing I forget if we mentioned this directly on the pod, I think we mentioned it right after recording the pod last time is about how poorly he rated as a defensive center fielder this past year. That's why his value fell to this bracket, despite his great hitting. Uh, what do you think about that idea of him as a center fielder moving forward? Or is that, or is he kind of past that phase? Of that his was the
1: point I was about to bring up to you, but I'm glad you posed the quandary to me because I'm, you know, ever since he came up in Seattle, I thought, you know, like at first I was like, oh, yeah, like he learned a lot from the tutelage of Robinson Cano. You know, it was kind of talked about in nauseum about how close they were when he was a young big league over the Mariners. And then, you know, he kind of went to Arizona and slowly ascended to one of the better players in the sport. I was looking at him the other day when we were, you know, when I was getting ready to do the show. And I was kind of taken aback at how poorly he was. He put up negative 15 DRS in center field last year, I believe, or minus, I believe it was minus 13. But I'll double check that. 15 DRS, which is not good.
0: I mean, you... But for put, And for somebody that, as we said, missed almost half the year with injury, in that small sample, it's almost unheard of to... So,
1: so it, mean. in a sense, it could benefit the Marlins as to like, yeah, his value may be down. He is a guy that I think... Really, like, because he's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna hit to the level that he did in 2019 every year. And I think I was having a conversation with somebody about this the other day. Every player has a ceiling, and that ceiling isn't, you know, it's very seldom that a guy like Ruth or Bonds or you know Williams or you know name a slew of some of the greatest hitters of all time have a ceiling sustainable of you know seven, eight, sometimes even ten years if you're lucky. Marte's value comes more from being as you know a an above-average hitter who possesses that ability to move around, while you know he's hitting for power, he's you know he's doing a lot on the offensive side of the ball, all while playing premium defensive positions, like you outlined. I kind of I wouldn't want him to be our everyday center fielder. I still think that if you sign a guy, if you trade for a guy like Cesar Marte, you're still open to sign a veteran outfielder because I don't want him there every day. Granted, he was injured for a majority of this season. He didn't play a full chunk of games. So you can maybe take those metrics with a grain of salt. But we've seen in the past that he hasn't always been an excellent defensive center fielder. I personally think he's better served as a second baseman because that's really where his defense looks better. If you can kind of move him around from second and short because – the the met, defensive metrics are a lot kinder to him there. But I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's such an alluring thing because his offense, we've seen it. And even in the small sample size of the postseason, which is obviously a place most Marlon fans would like to see us, he, he hits. And the bat is the most attractive thing about him. I mean, for a middle infielder, center fielder type, he's got a career isolated power, 169 which isn't that great. I mean, the league average since he's been in the league is 166, but it's better than league average, and he does that while not striking out a lot. He's got a career 14.9% K rate. You know, he's got decent power for a guy who plays a lot of second base. But then again, it's just like, you know, Jazz Chisholm didn't exactly – he didn't disappoint fully, but he left a lot to be desired in the way of approach as far as how he kind of handled his at bats as the season went on but I mean Marte's stock is down so may now may be the time better time there there may never be a better time because say he goes out and has another great year and you know you move to 2023 he's still got two years of control and that's you know a team's looking at possibly 300 plus games of patel Marte who you know rebounded greatly in 2022 and this is all hypothetical but he'd be even more expensive. So I guess you want to strike now while he's a little cheaper. Right. I he, still have some questions, especially considering the defense. Even if the one year, you know, where he wasn't healthy, played slightly into those outcomes. But again, it's just the it's just the offensive production that makes him such an attractive piece.
0: Yeah. I mean, just to put it pretty bluntly, he's kind of at that level where you kind of get hit. If you have an opportunity to get him at what you consider a reasonable value without depleting the entire farm system, then you do it and you worry about someone like jazz later. Like he's someone that would be a higher priority than jazz, which I guess at some times this year was hard to think was possible, but he has that track record, you now, especially over like the last three seasons combined, you combine like the last three seasons And he's just an incredible hitter. He's one of the best hitters in baseball, and he does it while playing up the middle. And he has this, as I mentioned, this pretty amazing contract where it's eight and a half million next year, it's eight million team option in 2023, and then it shoots up to 10 million in 2024. And that's, I say that kind of sarcastically if it's 10 million for this guy in 2024, for that's such an incredible bargain. If he simply is mostly healthy, if he's like still anywhere close to the like performance that he's shown right now, he's, he's the most impactful position player, more impactful position, player than anybody they've had over these last four seasons since, since the rebuild started. So with him, he's kind of like, if you have an opportunity to get him, you get him and then worry about all the other, how everybody else is affected at a later time. I think you're, questions about him in center field are pretty valid. And even if he can't plug that hole in center field and you don't feel they have a hole at second base, he's such a big upgrade at second base um, over any, as much as we dream about jazz, you know, the ceiling that jazz has looks something close to Marte, but I don't think, I think if you were to be realistic about it, that, that Marte is going to be that better player. He's the guy that really does move the needle. So regardless of what position he does play, uh, just because of what he does offensively as that switch hitter that hits for good power, that when he's healthy, he's a good base runner, that uh, I think you even undersold his contact skills, elite contact skills. It's like Miguel Rojas, like contact skills, except with more impact behind it. Uh, Yeah. I'm, I like him a lot. Um, uh, As we get later into the series, we'll talk about guys that are even higher priorities than Marte is, but certainly among the players that we've mentioned so far, he is the one that really does, could pretty sizably change you know, the outlook that this team has both for this coming season and then oh, at least for two years beyond that.
1: And if you want to tie things together like a good episode of Career Enthusiasm, you kind of just want to like look at it this way. like, Tell Marte, too, we noted he played second base and center field two premium defensive positions where historically, you know, Obviously, center field has a long, longer track record of offensive, you know, titans in the in the context of the sport and its long story history. But he is an above average defensive shortstop, too. And I talked about this earlier with Miguel Rojas being the selfless kind of player that he is. If Brian Anderson's not 100% healthy, and again, we're all, you know, we're posing hypotheticals. The affordability of Marte's contract and the fact that Miami only has guaranteed contracts for Rojas and Anthony Bass entering the 2022 season makes him an obvious fit. If you like Jazz at second base, and I, you know, I've had this conversation with people. The one thing that impressed me, despite the sometimes lackadaisical nature of his defense, is the fact that overall, I think Jazz is a pretty good, albeit not perfect, defensive second baseman. I think you make that middle infield even more scary if you kind of acquire Marte with the intent of making him your primary shortstop. We know again we we've had this discussion before Rojas has experience at other positions. If you want to give jazz days off, you want to give Anderson you know days off or if he's just in the case that he's hurt, you can play him at third base and you wouldn't be concerned at all. I mean if you remember I know it was seven years ago but Clayton Kershaw's no hitter was essentially saved by a Miguel Rojas third baseman Miguel Rojas play. Mm-hmm. that, you know, saved a run, uh, you know, a base hit from going against Kershaw. But, you know, Rojas' Rojas's ability to move around and even a guy like Marte's affordability and his ability to move around makes him an even more attractive option. And it keeps Jazz at second, which is a position of strength. I don't think he's a shortstop long-term. But I think Marte is an answer. If the Marlins don't want to spend, you know, the 100 plus million that it's going to take to bring on a guy like Story Seager – and Correa, who's probably going to get, you know, three times hundred million, you know, it's kind of smart baseball in the sense of not breaking the bank, but also getting a very good player. Um, there's another infielder, though, I wanted to talk about that isn't going to command the dollars that any of these guys are, but he knows the NL East. I know I've said that ridiculously. I sound like a broken record. He was excellent this year in San Francisco. Wilmer Flores, like, why not? I We talk about platoon splits, and I thought Wilmer Flores, you know, we talked about Rojas's propensity to hit left-handed pitching. Wilmer Flores is in that boat too. This year against lefties, though it was only 74 games, 288, 336, 468. So he's slugging nearly 500 against lefties. He, you know, hit more home runs against right-handed pitching, and that's going to be the case. Obviously, there's more right-handed pitchers in the sport you're going to get more looks. So you're going to have more opportunities to do damage against them. But for the year, 18 home runs and under 500 plate appearances, a 447 slug. He has 20 starts at at least three infield spots, in 2021 third base, second base and first, he's not going to want to go love at any of those positions, but he's serviceable enough to where you're not going to kind of have your hands over your head. If he, if a ball's hit his way. So, and yeah, I, you know, I've, Always thought Wilmer Flores was a slightly underappreciated player. I thought he turned into an adequate big leaguer, but we saw in San Francisco and even in Arizona, he's got some power. And, you know, power is the one thing that eludes the Marlins more than winning seasons do. But, you know, Wilmer Flores, who I believe the Giants have a team option on him, wouldn't be a bad option, especially in a platoon situation where he's getting a lot of time against lefties.
0: Yeah, it's it's really a team friendly options. Three point five million with him so Which I they'll take they'll they'll definitely pick it up, but you're yeah, I think it's fair to wonder whether they would consider trading him, uh just because they have so many good position players. He's at a stage of his career where he can't get sent down to the minors to make room for somebody else, and they, they already are bring back Brandon Crawford in the infield, and I think they're probably leaning towards working something out with Brandon Belt. There's only so many. Uh, positions where they have at bats to go around, yeah. So with him, I, I think realistically that'd have to be a trade idea, but a pretty a pretty good one. With him, he's it's just an unusual player. Where from a very young age, uh, he's so slow. Even though he, I like his bat a lot, it's amazing like how slow he is for someone that played a lot of in the middle infield. Uh, it's an unusual like body type, and uh, it's a, for it's a limitation in his skill set. As you said, he really offsets it by being a great hitter. He was, well, great might be overselling it by being an above average hitter uh, mm-hmm. during his final few years of the Mets. And then ever since leaving the Mets, he has kept that up. It's been, it's gone really under the radar for him. Uh, one position that we have not touched on at all, and I have one player in mind for it. The most glaring need, I'd say, for this team moving forward is catcher. And there's one guy that fits in this bracket that I'm intrigued by not a free agent. He'd be a trade candidate. Danny Jansen of the Blue Jays, a 1.3 baseball reference war this past year. He didn't play a lot because he had similar to could Marte He had a hamstring injury. He came back. He aggravated it again. He missed more time very quietly. He got off to a terrible start to the year. And then once he came back for the first time from that injury from early July onward, He was like the best hitting catcher in baseball. It was a really small sample because he re-aggravated it again. So it was only like 28 games during the second half of the year where he was awesome when he was in the lineup. He caught their most important games at the very end of the season. Um, The main reason why I bring him up is because the Blue Jays are the anti-Marlins. They have so many controllable bats that they love. They have some questions about their pitching. And in particular, they have a lot of catching depth. They have other catchers. That they love in their organization. They have Alejandro Kirk. Uh, their he's top warrior. prospect is Gabriel Moreno, who is pretty close to being big league ready. So they have, um, I believe they there'd definitely be a willingness. There'd be a match to be made here between Jansen and the Marlins. He still has three years of club control remaining. He's finally arbitration eligible, but barely played uh, this past year. So he is, it's not going to be much. It's not going to cost much salary wise. And the main limitation that I notice pretty immediately whenever you see him play is that he has a pretty bad throwing arm. Uh, Guys can steal off of him. In terms of the other things he does as a catcher, though, it seems pretty fine across the board. He is an above-average framer. He is um, surprisingly more athletic than most catchers behind the plate, too. And going to be 27 years old this upcoming year. If he, just because of the kind of mixed track record he has in the big leagues with some injuries and some inconsistencies, um, they wouldn't have to give up a whole lot. Just um, even who, who's the other trade candidate that I brought up? Well, I brought up Quetel um, Marte, and then before that we touched on uh, Ian Happ. But I think they'd, his, his trade value might not even be that high just because he, he does have that shaky track record somewhat, but... Um, what he showed this year kind of seems legit, you know, when he was actually healthy. He seems like at we just know how low the bar is to clear for Marlins catchers to actually like be worth having on your roster. He seems to clear that pretty easily.
1: And obviously Miami has history trading with the Blue Jays. Uh, yeah, I'm not sold that he'd maybe be an everyday catcher, although what we've seen of him, he looks like he has the potential to hit 20 home runs at the position. I am a little concerned with the OBP. Although, like, how much stock can you really put into a guy who's only for a catcher? Like, if you, because we gauge full seasons for them a lot differently than we do other players, only really has like one full season of games. And that was 2019, where he caught, where he played 107 games. And he was an above average, he was a slightly below average hitter that year. But when he came up in 2018, he hit. And yeah, I mean, like, the bat plays in a sense though the numbers don't fully illustrate that but he you know he's 78 walks 171 strikeouts you know he's got power which i think is something that you look for at the catching position he's almost like you know in a sense like a miguel olivo and the fact that for a catcher while not well he's slightly more athletic than olivo you know he possesses the ability to you know run into a couple of you know balls during the season his fair share of home runs. He definitely came on at the end, though. I think at worst, I mean, you noted the bar isn't that high for catching right now, just given how bad, you know, the Marlins performed at that position offensively last year.
0: You know, but, one thing I just but, noticed about him for the first time is he has this crazy low batting average on balls in play throughout his career. He is a 230 career babbit.
1: It's like Max Kepler.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, that's something that I actually have to dive in a little bit further, but whether, um, that's, that's curable or, or if there's some, some tendency that he has that makes him super easy to defend as long if that normalizes, you know, even halfway, then it really changes how he would perform, you know, the re- results that he would have, um, for the time being, there is a pretty big disparity. If you look at all his stats, his, his actual output and his expected output, there's that pretty big disparity there. Um, he certainly, he's not on the top of course of like my catching witch list, but he did fall in between this, this range of values. And as a guy that seems to have more ability than his results at this point, those are the kind of guys that Marlon should definitely look into buying low on if they can.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, he, you could do a lot worse than Alex Jackson, so I mean, as as well as a guy like Sandy Alcantara pitched with guys like Alex Jackson behind the dish and, you know, the likes of Sandy Leone, they don't provide anything in the way of offense. So at some point, if you're going to want to be a playoff contender, you're going to want to have to produce even at a position that has been beyond like Charles Johnson and JT Rovino, a position of offensive utility. And, you know, what? like even some of the percent, like you said that about Jansen, athletically, he, you know, he's in the 65th percentile in sprint speed. So you would want a lot of that low Babbitt to really bounce out. Normally, I wouldn't look at Babbitt for catchers just because they generally tend to be among the slower, you know, non-pitchers on your roster. And, you know, it's very seldom. The only way that most catchers are going to beat out ground balls is, one, your name's either JT Realmuto. Or the infielder bobbles the ball, and you just kind of get there before they can recover and make the throw to first base. But for a guy who's not just an above-average runner, but among the faster catchers in the sport, though, he, you know he has no stolen bases to show for that. But you can kind of chalk a lot of that down to analytics. Yeah, let the babip normalize, and he's probably, you know, bordering on an all-star if he's getting regular playing time because the power surely plays. So um, I had one more guy I wanted to mention. I don't think he's going to go there, but we've long speculated about whether or not he would make sense just because of the ties to South Florida. And I'm sure I'm going to get destroyed in the comments section on Twitter for tomorrow for the slew of times that I've mentioned locality and proximity in the context of players that I think would make sense. But I'm just going to do it anyway. Look, we got Luis Diaz at first base. And he – and I put a note on Twitter the other day. He led all first basemen tied with Paul Goldschmidt in defensive runs saved despite having played nearly 1,500 less innings at the position this year. So we've got a future gold-glover. What about a guy who has won gold gloves and has hit and still can kind of get it done offensively too? I mean, are we going to give Anthony Rezzo a call? I don't know. But he's always fascinated me because when he first came up with the Padres after coming over in that Adrian Gonzalez trade, you know, he struck out 31% of the time. And they're like, oh my God, like, what did we trade for? Like, we got rid of a franchise first baseman. And we got this guy who just swings out of his shoes a lot of the time. And then he goes to the Cubs. And it's almost this long track record of, Diminishing strikeout rates and good on-base percentage and good defense and tower. and he has a World Series ring to show for it. He's got a couple of Gold Gloves to show for it. He's got over 250 home runs. Even last year when he wasn't, you know, peak Anthony Rizzo, he still put together a seven set 88 or 784 OPS. He hit 22 home runs. He put together a 111 OPS plus striking out only 15% of the time. But, and the note I put was, yeah, it's a small chance it happens because like I said, Lou and Diaz can pick it among the best of them. He may already be the best defensive first baseman in baseball right now, but Anthony Rizzo, you know, is that veteran presence that, you know, I've talked about guys like Granky and just a lot of these other guys that we've had conversations about earlier in the episode that, I don't know, it just, it seems like a natural fit. He went to the same high school as Jesus Lazardo. They both went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Yep. So, I mean, you have to at least kick the tires on it, right? Even if it doesn't become a reality. And, you know, Rizzo's kind of stated at the outset of um, prior to the season what his market was. I don't think he's going to get the hundred plus million that he's asking for, especially because he's kind of had two years where at a position of where you expect more offensive production, he's been about six to 10% above league average for about a season plus now. And, you know, for a guy who's in his mid 30, early to mid thirties, you're not going to really bank on, you know, him to rebound to the extent that he was at the peak of his career to give that kind of money to him. But, I just think there's a lot of you know factors beyond the the ties to South Florida that make him such a fascinating player, and one my, again, one of my favorite people in the sport too. Yeah,
0: I'll start, I'll start. with the ends, where I think a lot of people can agree that he is so likable, um, not just from being in South Florida, but you can see it in everything that he does. Absolutely everything. He is he's an awesome uh, an awesome ambassador for baseball. Um, he, man, the one thing he still does at an elite level is he gets hit by pitches at an elite level, 20 to 23 of those this past year. He's led the league in that a few times in his career. Um, so the floor is, is decent because he's going to get on base a lot. And we think, um, that the defense at first base can age pretty well. So that on that, on the surface, you know, he's, he's a solid player, I, I don't see the fit though as a first base only guy. Um, not, and it's not just because like Le- Lewin is a lock to be an everyday player moving forward. I certainly have some questions about that, but it's also because they still have need to figure out what to do with Aguilar uh, and they need to figure out what to do with Garrett Cooper, whose best position is first base. And I think um, anyway you slice it, Garrett Cooper's upside is higher than Rizzo's moving forward. They're even though they're very similar age. Um, the recent track record with Cooper, both the the results he has and the underlying stats is that he's, he's making a better quality contact. Um, and he's hitting for more power to all fields at a, at a position where, as you mentioned, the bar for um being the offensive threshold you need to reach in order to play every day at first base is pretty high. And Rizzo is like teetering. He's kind of teetering on, on that level that you want from an everyday first baseman. And, um, and so is at times someone in his career. Jesus Aguilar has also at times. That's why it's such a tricky decision with him moving forward. If he's not going to deliver in clutch situations as well as he has this past season, is he somebody that's worth carrying on the roster? Um, they don't have any perfect solutions internally. It's just that I don't know if Rizzo is enough of a potential upgrade for them to kind of shake up everything they were already planning at that position but I guess the most important thing is always about you know what what's the cost of bring him in, and uh, for someone that was allegedly seeking a pretty long contract as recently as early 2020, um, there's no doubt about it that the market's going to be pretty cruel to him. That he is, uh, the Marlins are going to be able to afford him if they really want to on a, a short term deal. It's I, I don't really see the fit with every all the moves that they've made. But um, it all comes down to exactly you know what the price is and if they can get him in here on a really reasonable deal, then um they can, they can move some of those other guys and um, still make it a cohesive roster. So it, it would take some creativity. But
1: it would, and especially because you don't know what you're gonna do with a guy like Aguiar, Cooper, who defensively, you know, he doesn't look like the most athletic guy, but metrics say he's actually not that bad at first base. I mean, you noted it's his best position, and we've seen at times throughout the season that he's not an outfielder, really. He's just kind of there because he's out of position, and then, you know, the Players Association and Manford can't really get together on what they want to do about the universal of DH. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Rizzo's a guy that probably won't sign immediately in the offseason either. You know, just given the nature of, you know, the way his defensive metrics have been over the last couple of years, they've kind of slightly regressed. And we don't know if there's going to be a DH. So I mean, if he's a D, if there is a DH in the National League, you could see the Phillies move a guy like Reese Hoskins to DH and could open up a spot for him there. Or you know, the Yankees could entertain him coming back because they don't know what they're going to get out of void. He's had an up and down, you know, injury history with the Yankees, so it's it's he's going to have his pick of suitors. Though I don't think he's going to get the dollars that he initially forecasted for himself. I I agree with you like the fit isn't perfect but there are just you know he has intangibles and he has a track record that suggests he would definitely be an upgrade just for a team who just the ability to score runs is very few and far between among guys throughout the roster so yeah I mean I think we can end it there there's you know I've pretty much everybody that I kind of yeah. outlined I thought would make sense
0: we gave people more than their money's worth on this. Oh yeah! Uh, even, even after editing, I think this is going to be right around an hour and a half of, of stuff. Oh. It only goes up from here. That's the way we formatted this. We worked yep. our way up. The next episode, aisle three, this is, these are going to be guys that are more than two war this past season, like average to above average players. And it only goes up and up and up. But we're, I think we're getting this down. And so we hope we gave you guys something to think about. Uh, I'll, I'll put the links to people on the article page on the website where you can actually look at all the players that fall in this bracket to see if we missed anybody that, that you guys think makes sense for the Marlins. The aisle two of our Marlins off season shopping done here. That's Lewis Adio Weiss, Eli Sussman from fish stripes. And what do you think we're, we're going to probably going to be recording next Wednesday, next Wednesday. Think? Yeah. And that'll come up the following Thursday. So you could, Plan ahead for us after this episode, the next one, probably Thursday, October 28th is when that one is going to drop as we work our way through this offseason shopping. And uh, right around then, we'll be coinciding with the World Series. So, yeah, we're shifting almost entirely into full offseason mode coming up here on the podcast. Be sure to yeah. check out all our coverage on Fish Drives on social media on fishdrives.com. And uh, we always appreciate the ratings and review on the podcast as well, wherever you listen to it. We'll be back. With this pod uh, throughout this off season, and we appreciate you guys all tuning in. Go fish.
1: Go fish.